1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. How many people remember the movie Back to the Future? Okay. Crazy scientist, Doc Brown, turns a DeLorean into a time machine. Marty McFly, not sure why they picked the name, cruises back in time, and his presence alters history. And you see in that movie how just one change in one moment of time changes so much of the future. Well, what if we could climb in that thing, the DeLorean, all of us, okay, squeeze in tight, and what if we could go back to that first Easter Sunday right outside the tomb, park the DeLorean right outside the tomb there? What if we could see what things would be like if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead? What would that be like? Well, wait on that. Let me catch you up to speed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you've been with us as we've been studying through this book, you know that Paul wrote this book to correct a bunch of problems, issues. Corinth was a church with issues. These guys were suing each other. They were bickering. Some were saying, I'm a disciple of Paul. And others would say, I'm a disciple of Apollos. Oh, those guys are crazy. I followed Peter. Some were turning a blind eye. Most of the church was turning a blind eye to sexual immorality. These guys had no respect for authority. They were gloating or sulking over their spiritual gifts. Every service, we've seen as we looked at chapter 12, every service was a chance for these guys to just show off, show off their spiritual gifts. And verse chapter 13 definitely tells us that these guys did not have much agape love. That's why Paul wrote chapter 13, the love chapter. I said this before, but it seems like every chapter, Paul turns over a rock and out scurries a new problem. Or you could say, he turns, he rounds a corner in the church and there's another rat to kill. Well, chapter 15, Paul waits and he sets his sights on the biggest rat of all. This is the most dangerous, the most heretical idea that had begun to creep into the Corinthian church. See, some of the Corinthians had begun to adopt the contemporary thinking of the day, which is, there is no resurrection. Look at verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, there were some folks in the Corinthian church, Christians, mind you, who were saying there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Now, you and I hear that and we think, well, exactly how dumb do you have to be to claim to be a Christian but not believe in the resurrection? The thing is we have to understand that the, in the Greek way of thinking, resurrection, the idea of resurrection was absurd. How many people were with us in the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 17, you might remember, when Paul was preaching in the most Greek of cities, Athens, he goes to Mars Hill. This was a city of, of philosophy, of, uh, of logic, where, where they sat around. It actually says in verse 21 of 17, they sat around all the Athenians and the foreigners that, who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Athens was all about new ideas and, okay, yeah, let's, let's talk this out. Let's see if this is logical. Well, Paul, back in chapter 17, walks into this, this logical city, stands up on the platform they've given him, and he has them eating out of his hand. Paul is such a logical guy. He, he 
lays things out so well that nobody could argue with him. He has him eating out of his hand. He's created a, a logical masterpiece. And then he mentions Jesus. Jesus' death and his resurrection. You know what happened? End of meeting. Everybody's like, oh, Paul, look at the time. Uh, death and resurrection. Yeah. Verse 32 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, these are the Greek thinkers, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. When he got to the issue of the resurrection of the dead, some of them said, Who is this hayseed who believes in resurrection? And others were a little more polite. They're like, uh, You know what, Paul? Um, maybe we could cover this a different time. That's how ridiculously absurd the idea of resurrection was to the Greek mind in Athens. Now, some of you remember, how far is Corinth from Athens? 40 miles. This is the exact same culture here. The overwhelming thinking in Greek culture, Corinth included, on the topic of resurrection was, that's goofy. Resurrection? That doesn't exist. It's, it just doesn't happen. Paul walks into Corinth. He's preaching resurrection. And there's a harvest of souls. There's a whole church that's born in, in Corinth. And then months later now, he hears that like so many other issues, the Corinthian church is not impacting the thinking of the people around them. No, they are being infected by the people thinking around them. They begin to think, the Corinthians, maybe there is no resurrection of the dead. I mean, what if, what if we really do just die? And, of course, not much has changed. We, too, Christians, we, too, have been rescued by a risen Savior. But we, too, live in a culture that tells us that we're stupid for believing. Our culture tells us, no, this is it. That, this is all there is. There's nothing more. And sometimes we, too, wonder, what if they're right? I mean, what if there really is no resurrection? Well, Paul is going to explore that. He will, if you will, fire up the DeLorean, take us on an altered history journey where Jesus now is dead. He will follow that possibility to its natural, logical conclusion. And it's a dead end, <laughs> a really dead end. Now, before we get into this, before we start at verse 12, you guys need to know, you need to remember or be reminded, verses 1 through 11, you can just kind of glance at it real quick if you want. Paul has already put together an airtight case for the resurrection of Jesus. Paul has already made it so abundantly clear that Jesus did rise from the dead. If you didn't get the tape, if, if you weren't here on Easter Sunday, I'd recommend, if you're, if you're wondering, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Then you should get the tape. Um, you can go online on our website, ccotl.org, and look for Easter Sunday, I think it was April 8th, and download that and listen to it, because it's all about verses 1 through 11, where Paul puts this airtight case. He proves beyond a reasonable doubt. I think he proves beyond the shadow of a doubt. Well, look at, look at verse 5. He brings hundreds of witnesses to the witness stand to testify. Verse 5 says that after Jesus was resurrected, he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, that's the apostles, or the disciples. Verse 6, after, he was seen by over, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Paul says at that point, 
Look, you can ask these guys. Most of them are still alive. They saw Jesus after he died. Verse 7, after that he was seen by James, that's Jesus' brother, then by all of the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also. That's hundreds of witnesses that Paul brings to the stand to verify that, in fact, Jesus did rise from the dead. And he finishes in verse 11 by bringing the Corinthians themselves to the stand. Look with me, verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. In other words, Paul says, look, whether I preach to you, or Apollos preached to you, or Peter preached to you, or James preached to you, when you believed, the thing that you believed, the very thing that you believed was that Jesus rose from the dead. So now Paul says in verse 12, he's completely removed the idea that Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. He's got the crux of his argument here. We preach Jesus, Paul says, resurrected. And you believed. So he says, verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Here's the deal. No one in the city of Corinth or in the, the church of Corinth, no one actually stood up and said, you know what? I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. No, they were talking about a general principle. They were talking about the general idea of resurrection. And Paul says, look, you're not thinking logically. Nobody contested Jesus' resurrection in the church of Corinth. What they were beginning to doubt was, I mean, okay, so he was resurrected, but what about me? That was their point. And Paul says, look, that doesn't make sense. How can you say I believe in a resurrected Lord, but I don't believe in resurrection? How does that work? How do I believe in a resurrected Lord, but I don't believe in resurrection? So Paul begins now to follow their flawed thinking down its logical path. He follows the premise. The premise is there is no resurrection from the dead to its logical conclusion. And that's where we find a major dead end. And it's a depressing end. Now, I need to warn you, the first half of this message probably is going to be a little depressing. Because the first half of the message is all about what if Jesus had not risen from the dead. The second half should be quite the opposite. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 begins a passage that basically says, if Christ is not risen. Paul says, look, if Christ is not risen, then this is how things are. Look at verse 20. He says, but now Christ is risen. If Christ is not risen, then this is how things are. But now that Christ is risen, this in reality is how it is. In verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then Jesus is just a victimized corpse. Think about that. If Christ is not risen, then Jesus is just a victim, a victimized corpse. In verse 20, though, now Christ is risen, we see a victorious conqueror. Now, look with me at verse 13. Paul's going to follow this, this depressing line of logic here. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If the premise is no resurrection, then Jesus never rose from the grave. His corpse stayed in the tomb and rotted away. And that leads to the next logical conclusion, verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then 
Well, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. The word empty there is kinos. It's used of of a vessel or a container that contained nothing. It looks like it contains something from the outside, but when you look at it, it actually contains nothing. This is like when someone drinks the last drop of milk and puts the carton back in the fridge. You parents, anybody know that? Teenagers? Or you wiser thinking? Husbands. This is when you go to pour your, yourself a glass of milk and it's kinos. It's an unfulfilled promise. It's empty. It looks like it's going to hold something, but it doesn't. So, it's a promise unfulfilled. Verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is kinos, empty. Look back with me at verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You see the the correlation between 11 and 14? Preaching, believing. Preaching, believing. Paul says, I preach to you the resurrection of Jesus. When I came into Corinth, I preached to you, Jesus died, he rose again. Paul says, look, Peter, when he came in to Corinth, he preached to you the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died, he rose again. Paul says, Apollos, all the guys that you're pitting us against each other, he says, Apollos preached to you Christ's death and his resurrection. And then he says, and you believed. Corinthians, you believed. Verse 14, let's put it in the New Doug version. If Christ is not risen, then all that preaching, Paul says, and all of that listening that you did, and all of that believing that you did was a huge waste of time. And of course, that's true today, right? If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then right now, I'm wasting your time. Time is precious, and I am wasting your time. And you guys are really dumb to let me waste your time like this. But don't feel bad because I'm the most foolish of all. I've probably wasted the most time this week if Christ has not risen. You guys know I work at Disney. I get all sorts of free time. It's free. I get to do with what I want. If Christ has not risen, I should be playing Xbox on my breaks. I should be playing basketball. I should be doing something, you know, maybe get my body in shape, whatever. Yeah, you're thinking, yes. I should be doing something besides studying the Bible if Christ is not risen. Now, Paul continues their, pre- their premise down its path in verse 15. He says, worse yet, worse than us wasting your time, if Jesus' corpse is rotting in the grave, if he's a victimized corpse, verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Paul says, look, if I follow your premise here, then... Worse than just wasting your time, Paul says, you'd have to actually say that I'm misrepresenting God. If God actually never raised Jesus from the dead, and I'm going around saying that he raised Jesus from the dead, I'm in big trouble with God, Paul would say. I'm going around the world telling people that Jesus has been raised from the dead when God, in fact, didn't do it. I'm in big trouble. Verse 16, it gets worse. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Now, wait a second. He already said that. Look at verse 13. Basically, the wording is almost identical. The meaning is identical. Why is Paul repeating himself? Paul's basically saying, now remember, if your premise 
is correct. If the dead do not rise, then Jesus has not risen. See, this was, this was the biggest duh moment. I mean, imagine you're, you're in the Corinthian church. Some of you have actually maybe gotten up and, and had a, a word of knowledge or whatever. And you've said, look, the whole thing about resurrection, it's, it's goofy. You know, Jesus rose, but, but uh, none of the rest of us can. Imagine you're in the church and you've actually said this. And Paul says, okay, now let me think this through. If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. See, what, what Paul is doing here is taking that proverbial dead horse and beating the tar out of it. These guys in the, in the Corinthian Greek culture, two things they love. They love many things, but two things was uh, wrestling and debating. Well, if this debate that Paul's in were a wrestling match, it's like he's ripped off their arm and he's beating them with it now. Look at verse 16. He says, now don't forget, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Paul says, guys, think about this. If Jesus' corpse is rotting away in a tomb... What kind of savior is that? Jesus' whole mission was to take my sins upon him. To take your sins upon him. His whole mission was to be punished in my place. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. I've sinned. I deserve to die. His whole mission was to die in my place and to come out victorious on the other side of death. Paul says, now, if your premise is right, then God is up in heaven, having sent Jesus on this mission, going, oh, missed it by that much. We were so close. Saying, Jesus, you did so well. I mean, you lived a perfect life. You you died for humanity. Sorry, the whole resurrection thing didn't work out. If this is the case, Paul says, then you and I are not only wasting our time, and not only am I misrepresenting God... But you and I stand guilty, guilty before a righteous God, a really scary, righteous God. This is the same God that opened up the earth and swallowed thousands of Israelites for grumbling. I read in my quiet time this morning in Job. Now, you know, Job's an uplifting read, but Job chapter 9, verse 2, Job is complaining about all the things that are happening to him. And he says, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot, this is New New Living Translation, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial, if only there were a mediator who could bring us together, but there is none. The mediator could make God stop beating me, he says, and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. We know Job's perspective is all twisted here, but he says, then I could speak to him. If I had a mediator, I could speak to him without fear. But I cannot do that in my own strength. You know that 1 Timothy 2.15 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You guys, we only have one mediator between us and a really righteous God. His name is Jesus. And if Jesus never rose from the dead, then I get to face God and try to defend myself. This logical path that Paul takes gets even worse. Verse 18. He says, Then also, 
Here's something else you might not have thought of. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now that's, that's sobering. That means every Christian funeral you've ever been to was a farce. All that, all that talk about seeing your loved ones again, it's dribble. It's a, a cruel joke, Paul says. See, that's what lies at the end of this thinking. That's why Paul says, verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul says, look, if, if there is no resurrection, then we are, every single one of us who claim to know Jesus, we're fools. Now, that means we've, we've hitched our whole lives to a, well, a fable, a myth, a cruel joke. Now, there are churches, I don't know why, but there are churches that teach that Jesus was just a good man. That he was just a really good teacher. If that's all he was, if he didn't truly rise from the dead, and I've dedicated my life to him, I'm a fool. And you guys are too. But maybe you say, well, look, great charity has been done in the name of Jesus. I mean, even if he didn't conquer death, all sorts of really good stuff has happened in the name of Jesus. I would say, so what? So what that Christians have built orphanages, fed the homeless, sacrificed their lives on the mission fields for others? If it's all about this life, you're a fool if you worry about anybody but yourself. If it really is only wrapped up in the next 20 years or 20 days or 20 minutes that I have, if, if that's all it is, then all the commercials are right. Go for the gusto. I mean, you only live once. Go for it. You should steal from whomever you need to. You should kill whomever gets in your way because you only go around once. If Jesus is a victimized corpse, if he has no power over the grave, he does me no good. By the way, he's also a liar. If he's still in the grave, he's a liar because he said he would be raised in three days. So let's review. You guys, everybody feeling happy yet? Let's review. The apostles are frauds. Every church service for the last 2,000 years has been a waste. You'll never see your loved ones again. And you are a fool for being here today. Well, I've just summarized the unbeliever's view of us. Bertrand Russell, Ray Steadman called him a very eloquent spokesman for unbelief. This guy was an atheist, true and true. This is, this is Bertrand Russell's uh, summation of the life here on this planet. Brief and powerless is man's life, he says. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. See, he said, for man is condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gate of darkness. Well, that's cheery. But listen, at least he was honest. I mean, if you truly don't believe any of this stuff, at least he came to the logical conclusion. It's the only honest conclusion you can come to as an unbeliever. Now, 
Let's take our trip back in time. Verse 20, and see how it really is. Paul says, all those things are so terrible, but (laughs) I'm so glad for this verse. But now Christ is risen from from the dead. Praise God for this verse. This is like the... It's a wonderful life verse. <laughs> you, you, you think of how it, was gonna, how it could have been, and now you see how it really is. This changes everything. And Paul doesn't have to go back in the DeLorean to make this case because this is reality. This is actually what happened. Again, if you don't believe me, go back to verses 1 through 11. Read them through. Ask God, Lord, help me to understand this because verses 1 through 11 make crystal clear that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Now, in these words, verse 20, all the depressing consequences of victimized corpse evaporate. And instead, now we're going to see a victorious conqueror. Now, we need to move rather quickly. So, let's get going. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Leviticus chapter 23. You guys may be thinking, what's, what's first fruits? Leviticus 23 talks about the feast of first fruits of the harvest. What happens is this. The children of Israel, they would take the, the first best sheaf of wheat that came out of the ground, that popped out of the ground, and they would offer it to God. It was basically saying, back, saying to God, look, you provided this, and we know, we trust that you will provide more. So here's the first and the best offered back to you. It was a sign of belief. It was saying, look, we trust you that you're going to give us more because you've obviously provided this, this much, the first fruits. By the way, this is a really aside, but that's the principle of the tithe too, right? I don't give God 10% that I have left over. I give him my first 10%. I show him that I trust him. It's not mine anyway. I say, you gave this to me. I'm giving you the first fruits knowing that you will return to me and I will be just fine. Now, but do you see what Paul is doing here? Paul is saying, Paul looks out in verse 20 over the, the harvest of humanity and says, Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one to pop out of the ground. He, he, was, he was dead and buried and he was the first and best to pop out of the ground. He was offered back to God. Never to return to death again. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait, he wasn't the first one raised. Lazarus was raised before Jesus was, right? But he was the first one resurrected, meaning he was the first one to be raised and never to die again. Now, Jesus said of himself, John chapter 12, verse 24, listen to this. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You see that? Right before Jesus died, he said, look, I'm a grain of wheat. And I I have a choice. I can stay the way I am and not go through this death and be alone. Or I can die and become the first fruits of a great harvest. And you know the choice that he made. He died. He was put into the ground that he might be the first fruits of a great harvest. That's an awesome thought. Next time you go by a cemetery, I... This is an aside. I kind of like going into cemeteries. Am I weird? Yes? No. I like going just for the history, you know, just to, to read about different people and that kind of stuff. But next time you go by a cemetery, instead of imagining cold, brittle bones under there, 
Imagine a field of grain ready to shoot up at the harvest, to have brand new life coming at the harvest. Look at verse 21. Paul says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now a lot more could be said here, but I'm trying to wrap us up in, in a decent amount of time. Here's what Paul's saying in short. Look, Adam was the first fruits of death. The day that he sinned, he died spiritually. And because we were in him, right, we all came from Adam. Because we were in him when he died spiritually, we also died. Every one of us was born dead. We were stillborn spiritually. Adam was the first fruits. He was the first of many living dead. Adam introduced the, the whole world to the grim reaper. But Jesus was the second man born without sin. Adam was born without sin, right? He was formed. There was no sin in him, but he had a free will. And he used that to bring sin into the world. Jesus was born without sin and he stayed Without sin, he lived the perfect life, he died the perfect death, and he rose again and reversed everything that Adam did. Look at verse 21 again. For since by man, that's Adam, came death, by man, capitalized, that's Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, everybody dies, even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. In other words, look, if you are in Adam... Raise your hand if you are in Adam. Okay, it's not hard. Everybody's in Adam. Okay? If you are a part of the human race, you're going to die, right? That's pretty much proof that you're, you are in Adam. If you are a part of the human race, a part of the condition of your condition is that you will die. You can thank Adam for that. But it says if you are in Jesus, I don't know if I asked to raise your hand, if everyone would raise their hand. If you are in Jesus, he says, you shall be made alive. You and I had no choice whether or not we wanted to be born in Adam. We're stuck with it. You know, you don't get to pick your family, right? We're stuck being in Adam's family. We had no choice in that matter. But you do have a choice whether or not you want to live in Jesus' family. You have no choice in the fact that you're going to die in Adam's family, but you have a choice if you want to live in Jesus' family. Are you guys beginning to see there's a dramatic difference between the first half of this message and the second half of this message? It gets better. The first half was Jesus, a victimized corpse. The second half is reality, and that is Jesus, a victorious conqueror. Look at verse 23. Paul says, look, there will be a resurrection there will be this uh, coming to life. Everyone will be made alive. Verse 23, but each one in his own order. Now, this is interesting to me. The word order is tagma, T-A-G-M-A. It's a military word. What it means is a body of soldiers, uh, a corps of Marines, for instance, a platoon of soldiers. Now, this is really interesting to me because... That reminds me of a picture we've seen before in 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there, but if you remember in chapter 4, Paul was 
rebuking the, these Corinthians. Well, that's not a surprise. He was saying to them, look, you guys are honored, but we are dishonored. We apostles, we're at the back of this parade. Remember that? Basically, here's, here's how a military parade in the Roman uh, government worked. If I'm a general and I go out and I conquer some enemy, what I do is I bring them back. I bring the enemies back and there's a parade coming into Rome, for instance. If a general would win a victory, here's how the parade would look. First, you would see the conquering general. He would be at the very front of the parade. Then, after that would be the booty that was plundered. The, the things that they had taken from the enemy. And then, last in the parade was the conquered foe. Those who were condemned to die, to go into the arena and be condemned to die. It says, verse 23... But each one in his own order. Um, all, all Christ, excuse me, backing up. In Christ, all shall be made alive, verse 23. But each one in his own rank, in his own order, in his own group of soldiers. It says, Christ, the first fruits. That means Christ is the victorious general. Afterwards, those who are Christ's at his coming. Who's that? That's you and me. We are the plunder, the, the plunder, we are the booty. We are the ones that he stole from the enemy. How cool is that? All shall be made alive, verse 23, but each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, the victor. After, the, after that, toward, afterward, those who are at Christ at his coming, then, verse 24, then comes the end. I would say, then comes the end of the parade. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father... When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Talking about this parade, the, the final nail in the coffin, if you will, for this defeated foe, the one that's at the end of the parade. This is how it looked. The last thing that would happen to him before he would be killed. The victor, the victorious general, would place his foot upon the head of the vanquished. You, if you're a history buff, you know that. It, it symbolized total domination, total rule of the victor. You would put your, your foot on their neck, basically saying, I've won, and you've lost. This was a complete, total domination for the victor, and it was complete humiliation, complete subjugation for the enemy who lost. You guys see what's happening here? Paul looks over this parade of history, and Paul says, look, here's how it ends. Verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Right now, there's all sorts of people ruling and in authority and power all over the world. Some of them uh, in our country you may hate. I mean, you, you might not like the way they're doing things. Well, there's good news. <laughs> That's coming to an end. There's coming a time when... There will be no authority, no power besides Jesus. Verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Till he has put his foot on the head of the enemy. Now, what does that remind you of? Genesis chapter 3. God predicted this. God's even smarter than Paul. Go figure. Paul, God predicted this back in chapter 3 when he said to the serpent, after he had made this curse, after Adam had blown it, God said to the serpent, look, here's part of your curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed. A woman doesn't have a seed. And her seed, that's Jesus. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent bites the heel, but the heel crushes the head. Do you get it? That back in Genesis chapter three, he was talking about the end of this parade when Jesus says, I am the victor. Oh, and look who else is bringing up the rear of the parade. Verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. Now we're going to come back to that glorious thought in a minute. But look at the rest of that verse. It says, but when he, he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. <laughs> now, it almost seems like a left, left-hand turn. Paul seems to be clarifying something. My guess is this. Well, I mean, what, what Paul is saying, first of all, is that, look, this doesn't mean that God the Father is going to somehow be subject to Jesus. When it says that he's putting all things under his feet, it sounds to me like Paul is addressing some goofy doctrine that somebody was trying to, to put out there. And that doesn't surprise us in Corinth, right? This sounds to me like Paul may be addressing some guy who asked the question like that you've heard, can God make a rock that's too big for him to move? It's the same kind of idea. He's saying this uh, person that might be throwing this out, is God the Father elevating Jesus to a place where even he, God the Father, is under his feet? Paul says, of course not. That's goofy. That's, that should be evident. Verse 28. Now, when all things are made subject to him, Jesus, then the son himself, Jesus, will also be subject to him who puts all things under him, that God may be all in all. Paul says, look, when Jesus puts his foot on the last enemy's neck, he will say to his father, willingly, it's finished, dad. All power and authority has been given to me, just like you said it would. Everything that I have vanquished, I give to you. It says that God may be all in all. It's a glorious thing when you see Jesus always wants to glorify his dad. And the Father always wants to glorify his son. And the Holy Spirit always wants to glorify Jesus. There's never a selfish motive. It's always, I want you to have this. But now let's back up to verse 26 as we're getting ready to close. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Jesus, the victorious conqueror, leads the parade of the resurrected. The enemies follow behind in the parade. He puts his foot on the neck of his enemies. And the very last one, the very last enemy, after a thousand year reign... After Satan's rebellion, after Satan's defeat, the very last enemy to have Jesus' foot on his neck is death. Now, you guys know, hope you know, death is your enemy. It says right here, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, well Jesus is my Savior, so death is my friend. I'd say, come now. <laughs> death is not your friend. Jesus is your friend. Death is not your friend. Death is the one that steals your loved ones from you. Death is the one who makes you fear for your kids for when you're gone. Death death is the thing that makes me wonder how Noah is going to do when I'm gone. Death is not my friend. Death will steal everything from your bank account. 
Death is your enemy. Make no mistake, death is not your friend. And if you don't know Jesus, you deal with this enemy on your own. You are on your own with this enemy called death. But if you will receive Jesus, well, death is still your enemy, but he's a defeated foe, a vanquished enemy. I want to close with this. Look down at verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. This is where all this is going. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death, our enemy, is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, here it is, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reality. I promise you that is exactly how it will play out. He's not a victimized corpse. He is a victorious conqueror. And he's the one whom we all must deal 